This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. There was something that looked like it was way off into the distance. Have you ever driven to Regina from the east? You can see Regina probably an hour and a half after or even before you get to Regina. And you see it and you think, we're almost there. And then you drive for a long, long, long time. But eventually, boom, it's there. We had a point way off in the future when we would need to have the discussion about, okay, what proof am I going to need to do this? Or am I going to need proof of vaccination to do this? Or what are the rules going to be? And we didn't hear much from the federal government. We didn't hear much from the federal government. And then they essentially said, yeah, we don't really want to touch this. So uh, let's let the provinces do what they want to do. Ontario's still trying to figure out whether we're going to have any sort of rules. But let's go somewhere east of Regina where we can find out how things are going with regard to, I guess we call it a vaccine passport. Let's find that out First, Alicia Dacey joins us, senior digital producer with Global Winnipeg and 680 CJOB Global News Radio. Alicia, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Mike. How's it going? It's going great. Have you ever made that drive from Winnipeg to Regina? You know how Regina shows up and, and you think, <laughs> we're, we're making such great time. Well, the joke is, of course, is that you can see Regina from Winnipeg. So, yes, I've made the drive many times. <laughs> and after you get outside the ring road, can you actually see Regina? For No, of course no, you can. No, no, no. But, of yeah, can. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a little further away from that. Alicia, are we talking about a vaccine passport? Is that the description? Is that the official name? It's not the official name. Um, it's just being called a vaccine card or an immunization card in Manitoba. I think passport is a little a little too heavy for that. <laughs> okay, so vaccine card or immunization card. Tell us about what's been happening with Manitoba's immunization cards and vaccine cards. How's it going? Well, it's it's been a little bit of a schmozzle, I guess is the only word I could use to describe it. Um, we have a couple of issues. First of all, um, we have people whose vaccine records, um, or sorry, their immunization record for COVID-19 is, quote-unquote, getting lost. And what's happening is um, data entry into the system sometimes means that your health card number and your name aren't lined up properly in the system when you go to get your immunization. Um, So you go get your shot. And then a few days later, you go to check to see if your shot is on the record, and it's not. And the problem that people are running into is that um, they try and call the number that you need to call uh, to make an appointment because people know that those appointment takers have the capacity to see those records. Um, But because of Private Health Information and Privacy Act, they can't change that information on the record. So now what do you do? It's become (laughs) uh, pretty hard for some people. We've got, um, they say about 1% of all records, uh, there's a mistake in them some way, and they're trying to clean that up. 
boy, that's one in a hundred people, and there's a lot of people that you're dealing with, so you have to hope that things go right for you in order to have your immunization card or your vaccine card count for what it's supposed to. We're talking with Alicia Dacey, Senior Digital Producer with Global Winnipeg and 680 CJOB in Winnipeg. Alicia, what does this card allow you to do? Well, right now in Manitoba, anyway, not a lot. Um, actually, more uh, restrictions are being loosened today, and we're supposed to hear about what um, what changes might be made, and there might be some special privileges for those who are double vaccinated. But right now, all it is is a printed card that says your name, um, and there's a QR code that people can scan to see if you've been vaccinated. Um, so... As far as we know, it's not even acceptable anywhere outside the country. I don't think you can use it to get across the borders. And then every province is going to have their own, you know, uh, system for dealing with this. So right now, it's basically a card that says, hey, I got vaccinated in Manitoba. Maybe it'll let us get into some restaurants or perhaps the CFL games if we're allowed to do that. We still don't know. (laughs) And what's the reaction of everybody? What do people say about this? Well, people want their card. Um, the problem is, too, is that they actually had to stop printing cards because there is a shortage of white plastic blank cards. So um, we've got, you know, a couple of thousand people who have their cards. Everyone else has to do it digitally. You can take a screenshot of your QR code so that people can still see it. But people want their cards. They want that little badge of honor. You know, we've all gone through having to get two doses and and navigating the system. I mean, there's three different online websites for this whole thing in Manitoba, and it's it's already so disorganized. And it also doesn't help that people, um, or I should say that the province, our our health card, I, I think in Ontario it's very different, but our health card is still a printed piece of paper coming from a dot matrix printer. Like it's your name and number on a on a sheet that's sent to you. So we're not even digital when it comes to our health card, period. So this whole system needs upgrading, and we can't link anything, and it's frustrating, and people just want that that ability to whip out their card and say, hey, I'm vaccinated. Alicia, thank you so much for describing how to make a schmozzle 101. I hope that things kind of organize themselves going forward. You guys are are doing it before a lot of other provinces, so maybe the other provinces can look and say, okay, well, here's what we're not supposed to do. Here's what we have to be ready for. So we owe you a great big thank you for that, if that's the case. Yes, please learn from our mistakes, Ontario. Please learn. (laughs) Alicia, you have a great rest of the day. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Alicia Dacey, Senior Digital Producer at Global Winnipeg and 680 CJOB. Here is an up-to-the-second update on total population in Canada that has received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine 67.93% 67.93% 25,817,374 and if i refresh it 
Are we up to 375? I'm just curious. No, it's the same number. Okay, so 67.93% of the total population have received at least one dose. That would bring us, if you look at that, that if you've received one, you'll eventually receive two, right? Unless somebody says, oh, no, 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 I don't. And they start reading things that, you know, maybe they should check with a public health official about. Uh, but 67.93% of Canadians have received at least one dose. As far as total population goes, fully vaccinated, 35.91%. Now, this is total population. If we're looking at 12 and over, 77.67% have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. So you'd have to imagine that by that logic, just about all of that 77.67% will receive both doses. We've seen a lot of countries kind of plateau at that, kind of plateau around 80% or just under 80%. And that means that there may be 20%, maybe a little more than 20% in a number of countries. Canada could be included by these stats. We don't know. We have to wait for time to pass in order to have kind of a full idea of where we're headed in terms of vaccine numbers. But that means there's 20%. Some of them are going to say outright, nope, not doing it. And hey, nobody's forcing you at the moment. We have companies that can force you. We have ways that you may have to consider, all right, if I want to do this, I need to be vaccinated. We're still waiting to see how all of those details shake out. We also have individuals who you would call vaccine hesitant. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. And that probably goes into the 20% that we see right now, 22.33% in Canada. They, they would fit in there, right? Well, it leads us to the question of, of kind of the anti-vax movement. The anti-vax movement is one that you could look at and say has actually become even stronger, judging by some numbers. Center for Countering Digital Hate put together a report, and it was looking at social media companies that were allowing anti-vaccine information to stay on their platforms. And one of their theories is the social media companies are letting it stay because it makes the money because you've got a lot of people following this sort of thing. Their numbers say 31 million people follow anti-vaccine groups on Facebook, 17 million people follow or subscribe to similar accounts on YouTube. And so I think it's important that we dig into where this anti-vax movement started. Where did it come from? Because if we know where it came from, maybe we can understand it a little bit more. Joining us right now to help us out with this is Dr. Allison Meek, who is an associate professor in the Department of History at King's University College. Dr. Meek, how's your day going? I'm good. How are you doing? You know what? I'm, I'm not too bad. I'm very curious to know a little bit more about the history of the anti-vaccine movement. Is there a start we can pinpoint or or a major event we can pinpoint that might have had people questioning the validity or the usefulness of vaccines so 
the origins, the, the, the date that we can point to the anti-vax movement is the date that vaccines themselves were brought about. Since we have had vaccines from the 1700s uh, uh, with Edward Jenner, there has been an anti-vax movement. So it isn't new. Um, many of the themes that we see in today's anti-vax movement are very similar. Uh, part of it is religious, that God has given me this body and that nothing foreign should enter it. Part of it is political, as we're seeing today, that you can't tell me what to do. The government cannot tell me what to do. Part of it is just not understanding science. It, it sounds very odd on the surface of it to think that the best way to protect you against a disease is to put into your body a, a form, a, not a live form, but a form of the disease itself. And this is going to get your immune system. So all of this has existed. Uh, there were anti-vax societies in the United States and Britain throughout the 1800s. Social media, of course, has taken this to a whole new level even today. And when we talk about that new level, I mean, you can look around at even what we were just referring to with the Center for Countering Digital Hate doing a little bit of a report and trying to count up some numbers. And all of it is certainly out there. It is accessible. Is there anything in recent history that we point to? We can look at maybe the correlation that one, I don't even know if we call him a scientist, someone tried to make with vaccinations and autism. How much right. impact do you think that had? Uh, I think it was huge. So this was Dan Dr. Andrew Wakefield um, in, in England, who was a gastro, uh, I can never pronounce this word, but he was, he was a legitimate doctor on one hand. And so in 1998, he published in The Lancet, which is one of the top medical journalists, journals this this uh, study and i would put that in quotation marks that he did in which he sh argued that there was a link between the mmr the measles mumps, and rubella vaccine and autism from day one that study was shown to be completely problematic he handpicked the 13 and there were only 13 children it was largely based on the parents' recollection. There was no blind study. And there have been study after study, one uh, that was done in the Netherlands, that used half a million children, showed that there was no link. But unfortunately, because this was in the Lancet, because this was a Dr. Andrew Wakefield, because he was a real self-promoter, uh, he showed up on Oprah, he testified before the American Congress, it caught on. And immediately after that, the rates of these vaccines fell, there were measles outbreaks. And measles is, I think most of us that have had measles, it's uncomfortable, but it can also kill you. It can leave you blind. And then you get people like Jenny McCarthy, uh, who, who jumped into all of this. Robert Kennedy Jr., of course, with the name of the Kennedys. His, the Kennedys' whole family says that, you know, they love their uncle, but he's nuts when it comes to this whole issue. And, and it's just taken off. So I think it was the, the same uh, group that you were talking about, the, the, the group that looks at, the center that looks at um, hate online. What they discovered is almost 90%, or somewhere between 80 and 90% of all of the anti-vax messages online come from what they refer to as the disinformation dozen. There's 12 people. There's 12 people behind this. And most of those, including Robert Kennedy Jr., have an economic element. They're trying to sell you something. You can buy this or subscribe to this or donate to that. 12 people are behind most of this. I think another large percentage are Russian bots. 
We know that the Russians are behind disinformation campaigns. They helped to formate, uh, formulate the AIDS camp, uh, and, and conspiracy theories. They were behind the John F. Kennedy conspiracy theories. Um, but then I also think what you have are people that are legitimately scared and they're legitimately concerned. The fact that the World Health Organization came out just this week and said there's a danger in mixing and matching – that's not what the studies show. And their message was completely misconstrued. That's not helping people think, do I mix and match? Is it okay to take AstraZeneca? There's a really, really horrific messaging that's coming from the people that should know better. That's really, I think, feeding into this vaccine hesitancy that exists in Canada and around the world. We're talking with Dr. Allison Meek, Associate Professor in the Department of History at King's University College on the history of vaccine hesitancy. And as Dr. Meek points out, this dates back to when vaccines became a thing. You can go back into the 17th century and you can find elements of this. Even back in the 17th century, could there be a, a monetary component to it for anyone who was speaking out against it then? Or, or was it too early for capitalism? Oh, no, 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 they're, they're very much, there were always the snake oil salesmen that, that would, uh, because the medical profession in and of itself really doesn't become organized that way that we know it up, up until the 18, early 1900s. But yes, I mean, there were people that were selling, you know, you don't need this vaccine here, I can come and do leeches to get rid of, of X for it, or, you know, donate to this and join this organization. So yes, there's always been that monetary component to it. Um, of course, now you you do have regulation with the Food and Drug Administration or, or uh, Food Canada, um, but there's people that find their way uh, around this. Um, uh, yeah, it's, there is always that economic component to it. But I think there's also, as, as you were talking about earlier, the likes or the people that follow it. For some people, it may not be about money, but it's about fame. That They feel that they are getting attention. They feel that they are able to stand out uh, of the crowd. So this is Naomi Wolf or, or a woman by the name of Sherry Tenpenny. Um, these are the individuals who I think you see that real sense of um, ego that's coming into play with it. Dr. Allison Meek with us, Associate Professor in the Department of History at King's University College. Dr. Meek, you'd mentioned the disinformation dozen. I'd love to delve into that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Does that encompass the disinformation that, that we're kind of seeing online right now? The, do you trace that back to about a dozen people? Uh, this is what, the, what they've been able to show just looking. Uh, they did a big meta-analysis of, of all of these Post. And, and it's, it's 12 people. It's 12 individuals that are pushing the most of it. Now, of course, what happens online is they will put something out and then their followers will, will keep uh, pushing it and pushing it. Or um, those of us that deal with anti-vax always say that if you're going to counter it, don't just retweet it, but take a, a screenshot. So you're not contributing to the numbers uh, that, that they're going to rack up for, for these sorts of posts. But again, most of them are selling stuff. Um, one of the people on it is a man by the name of Joseph Mercola, who is constantly getting into trouble with the American FDA uh, for selling supplements in the name of medicine that, of course, have nothing to do with medicine. And he's constantly being fined for something like this. Robert Kennedy runs an organization called the Children's Defense Initiative, and he's the only person. He's the only uh, person that works at that entire um, organization. And you can always submit for donations or you can buy their a subscription to their monthly magazine. And, of course, he, he's got that Kennedy name. 
he's got that stature that comes from the Kennedy name. And it's people that are being hired to come to conferences that are, are being hired. Let me sort of tell you how to stand up to your doctor or and you've got to pay thousands of dollars to go to one of these seminars. So there's a lot of money. But I always find it interesting that the anti-vax movement accuses us of being paid shills, paid by big pharma. I've never got a penny. I'm not getting a penny for this interview. I've never got a penny for writing an op-ed or for going online. The money's being made on the other side. And, and I really wish the public would have a look at that. Yeah. I mean, those who do not pay attention to history are doomed to repeat it. I mean, that, that line is there. There is so much to learn. And, and if you just go beyond that headline or, or you just look at some of these videos, one thing that all of these, these individuals tend to have in common is they're really good presenters, aren't they? They make really flashy stuff or they're very good speakers. Very much. Yeah. And, and, and this is one of the ways that it's very difficult to, um, to come back at them, because I think most of us that are part of this anti-anti-vax movement, this is not our full-time job. We're, we're professors, we're doctors, we're nurses, we're in the media. Um, you know, it'd be lovely if we could spend the same amount of time putting together these glossy presentations that they do. But, but I still think it's important that we do counter them uh, as much as possible. It is becoming a problem. Um, it's a, and it breaks my heart how many public health officials, particularly in the United States, are quitting their jobs because of death threats. Um, people who now are able to know where they live, they're getting docs online. Uh, Anthony Fauci has 24-hour uh, a day security because of the death threats against his family. Um, the health official, I think she's in Tennessee, has just quit because of the backlash, uh, this pro-vaccine uh, message that she was putting out. And, and it's problematic. Um, I mean, I had somebody after an op-ed actually trace down my home phone number and call me at home. And, and you know, it, it, where's that line? But we have to fight back because this is public health. There's, there's the lives of children who cannot be vaccinated. There's the lives of those who are immunocompromised who cannot be vaccinated. We owe this to them. This is our duty as citizens of this country to take a safe vaccine that has the science behind it and to follow the science, to protect everybody. You know, if we're supposed to be a, a Christian nation of, of, or a, a religious nation of whatever faith, that seems to be what we should be doing. Well, we appreciate you taking the time, certainly. And I think, you know, one of the things we've got to look at, Dr. Meek, is, is what you outlined is on, on the side of people who, and we've spoken with so many of them on London Live, on the side of, of scientists and doctors and historians and anyone who is paying close attention to this, they aren't making any money, whereas the other side tends to be making some money. And one of the wisest people I know always says, follow the money. You want you want the truth to it? Follow the money. So we really yeah. appreciate you taking the time Thank for you. us. How do you feel this is going? Do, do you think the disinformation is, is becoming more widespread? Or do you think we're starting to see any kind of a, you know, a, a, I don't even know what it would be. Would it be kind of a, a plateau of it? No, I think it's growing. Um, but I also think what's starting to happen, and this is so unfortunate, is the reality not just of COVID, but of the Delta variant. Um, I, I think it is in Mississippi or Alabama, and I apologize, I can't remember which one it is. There are 10 children that are on ventilators because they were not able to be vaccinated and they are now suffering from the Delta variant. Um, there are anti-vaxxers who 
who are now dying because of it, or they're showing up at the hospital and doctors are saying the look on their face of regret when they realize they could have taken a vaccine and not ended up in the ICU. And I, 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 think, I think two things have to happen. One, it has to become personal. Um, I, I think that would be a wake-up call. I think the other is that if schools or businesses or travel perhaps say, if you're going to come in, you know, that's your choice, but you have to be vaccinated. And it's our choice to say, no, you can't come in. It's like smoking. Uh, I've always thought it, it's fascinating that people in the anti-vax movement say, but it's my body. Okay, that's fine. So then do you think I should be able to smoke wherever I want, including in your home, including in your children's school, including in a, a park where you're trying to have a picnic? It's my body. I can do what I want. You can't tell me. Is there going to be a line where it becomes socially unacceptable to not be vaccinated? I don't know. I, I, I hope it gets to that. I, I hope it, it, you know that's where we sort of go to. But uh, I, I'll believe it when I see it. Dr. Meek, thanks again for the time today. Keep safe. You too. Thank you. That's Dr. Allison Meek from the Department of History, associate professor at King's University College, and. I mean it when I say follow the money on this. I get sent all kinds of videos all the time, and I'll watch them, and I'll, I'll look. And if you see someone who is asking you to subscribe to this or do this or look into their background, and a lot of them have that, and you can go and look it up yourself. And, you know, this, this, is, this is a tricky thing. It really is. It's a very tricky thing, and it's going to be interesting to watch how it does play out. Because there are a lot of people who want to be right on both sides. There are a lot of people who want to be right. And I don't think that there is going to be two right sides in this in the end. We'll see. What I'm about to read is going to sound like it has come out of the pages of a famous work of fiction. But it has not. It's going, and I don't know how far back you would go. You wouldn't have to go back very far. We're not talking about Homer's The Odyssey. We're, we're not talking about some of those other books we mentioned, Pride and Prejudice, Moby Dick. No, 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 not out of those pages. But this is going to sound like it came from the pages of a work of fiction. But I'm telling you, we're going to find out about it, and, and it doesn't appear that it has. Here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to read this from a release right here in front of me. It says, Researchers create reptile-derived superglue that stops bleeding in seconds. Well, we have to know more about this. We cannot move any further in life without knowing more about this. Joining us is Dr. Kibret McQuannett, who is a professor in the Department of Chemical and Biochemical Engineering at Western University. Dr. McQuannett, thank you so much for taking some time for us. How are you? Very well, and thank you for having me. Okay, I've, I've read that line. I am beyond intrigued. Uh, Reptile-derived superglue that stops bleeding in seconds. This, this is a real thing, is it? We believe so. Whew. Okay, this this is fantastic. All right, uh, so if I'm thinking reptile-derived, I'm trying to go through a frog is an amphibian, a toad also an amphibian. Are we talking reptile-derived largely from snakes? 
that, that is correct. Um, it is derived especially with uh, one species of, uh, of snake uh, commonly called the lance head snake. The lance head snake. Okay, fantastic. Um, let's talk about how you even came to, to find this. Are you someone who enjoys hanging out with snakes and, and you've made uh, a kind of pretty important realization here? Not at all. I actually don't like snakes altogether. <laughs> and yet it seems you have to work very closely with their venom to do something like this. Um, yeah, as long as I, I don't see the snakes themselves, and I'm okay to work with <laughs> chemicals that they produce. Fantastic. That means you can you can order snake venom. You don't have to find the snake and uh, ask him for the venom. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go through what this finding is then. What do you believe you've uncovered? Well, what uh, you know, this is a study which is a, a collaborative research between uh, my lab here at Western, at the University of Manitoba, and also the Institute of Burden Research in uh, the uh, um, Southwest Hospital in China. Is we were really interested to develop a super tissue glue, um, something that you can apply uh, on an, an area where uh, there is uh, excessive bleeding due to you know, car crashes, for example, or, or other um, severe injuries. Um, and then how do we stop bleeding as quickly as possible so we can save lives? Just to give you a context, the uh, gold standard product out there that is used in field hospitals and also in just, you know, other conventional hospitals, um, it requires around um, 90 seconds to really form a gel and to start um, stopping bleeding. What we have done here is we reduced that um, into half, which is around 45 seconds. Now, I, I know that 45 seconds may not actually you know, sound big, but uh, if you are saving 45 seconds uh, from a person who is bleeding excessively, that is a matter of life and days in this emergency situation. So that's, that's what we really try to do here. Is it ever? We're talking with Dr. Cabret McQuanet, who's a professor in the Department of Chemical and Biochemical Engineering at Western University. And we're talking about work that Dr. McQuanet has been doing with a lab in China and right here that has looked at reptile-derived super glue, essentially, that can stop bleeding a whole lot quicker than we've otherwise been able to. So this has some pretty incredible uses. So where do you sit in terms of your research? Obviously, this has been found. What happens now? Well, so what, what happens now, obviously, is that, um, you know, we are um, conducting additional experiments. The, uh, the work that we have reported today um, is uh, the data derived from animal studies. Uh, we need to translate this one to, um, uh, to the clinic. And uh, there are a number of benefits of, of this, this approach, we believe. Um, if you if, if, if you imagine uh, a, a scenario where you know you have like a, a, a tiny bottle the size of a super glue, uh, what we did is we we we, we took this uh, this special enzyme from uh, the snake venom, uh, and we embedded it into a gelatin. Uh, the gelatin is modified to be visible light activated, and there is a reason why we chose visible light because. People have been trying to use UV light, but UV light damages DNA, and then therefore it's not safe. Um, and then 
you can apply to a, a site of an injury and then you can you can you can shine a light and that is uh, you know typically it could be a, a laser light or it could be um an led light for example a flashlight of of a smart a smartphone um, camera and that will then fill the, uh, the the tissue so we believe that it is it's really important because from a safety perspective we are not using um UV light, as I mentioned. Uh, and uh, the second benefit of this one is most tissue adhesives don't actually work very well when you have blood flowing around. Uh, right. And so the washout is, 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 is a big property for any tissue adhesive. You're not working in a dry environment. It's all white and blood is just you know flowing around. Uh, and so what this technology brings um, is, is that the adhesive strengths that it forms between the tissue uh, once you apply it, is 10 times stronger than the current technology out there. Um, and so we believe that these are attractive features, and uh, we are continuing you now to do additional work um, and, and explore avenues where we could uh, push it further into, into the clinic. And this would have applications anywhere and everywhere. We're talking with Dr. Kibret McQuanet, who is a professor in the Department of Chemical and Biochemical Engineering at Western University, partnership with University, a science team in, in China, looking at this. So if we think about it from an emergency perspective, you mentioned, you know, if, if someone suffered a, a very serious injury, you needed to close a wound quickly, there would be that application. But in what you're saying with this being able to bond tissues together, could this take the place of even, say, stitches? Absolutely. And in fact, wound closure is one of the applications that, uh, that we have studied in this particular work. Um, and, um, you know, when we, make, we made a, a deep um incision on on the skin and we brought the uh um the, you know the, the the tissues together and then we applied the screw uh it healed much much better than any other um control tests that that we have done um and so we are thinking of um you know first aid kit potentially um you know someone who is you know making a cut you know while they are you know doing something in the kitchen um and mm-hmm. you know you can apply it and if, um, you know, you imagine that this little bottle has also a built-in light that you can just, you know, shine on, on this gel and then it sets, um, it, 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 it's a great thing. Um, so, you know, we're looking at, you know, that type of application, uh, first responders in emergency situations, um, for example, uh, in, in um, uh, you know, in the military, uh, we, we can think of, you know, uh, you know, during combats and, 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 and injuries associated with that. Uh, and, of course, you know, wind, wind closure. So we, we, we are doing, um, you know, these types of um, studies and then we are excited about it. Um, just in terms of the collaboration uh, I mentioned earlier, it's a collaboration between Western, the University of Manitoba, um, and also Canadian University, and uh, the Institute of uh, Burn Research, which is in China. So it's a... Uh, a three-way collaboration, truly international effort. Well, that makes it even better. Dr. McQuanant, it's uh, it's something that I think we're all hoping winds up in a first aid kit near us. Obviously, there's still a lot of time to go on this. Do you allow yourselves to put together a timeline on it, or is it something that you just you do the research, and, and if it works and if it's ready, it, it'll be ready? 
Um, from from the the component perspective, the, the different components that would actually make the super glue, uh, we have done extensive studies, um, and there is really very little, if any, left that needs to be done. Uh, what remains now, as I said earlier, is um, find a, an avenue where we can take this one and um, start applying and, and testing it on on human subjects, and of course, as you would you know imagine, anything that's going to be applied on on human subjects, obviously it has to go for further testing, and then there are um, you know uh, you know ethical approval and uh, and and subsequently re- regulatory approvals, um, and you know it will be difficult for me to put a timeline, but my hope is is that. Um, just given the, uh, uh, the, the the components being safe, uh, that we could uh, we could accelerate uh, and 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 hopefully see this thing, um, uh, you know, helping people. I guess before we go, Dr. McQuanan, can you put into perspective how many years this has been worked on? This isn't something that started two weeks ago. How much time has been put into this? Um, we've been working on this specific project uh, over two years. Uh, it's, it's about two and a half years since okay. the uh, the idea is put together. It's probably even a little longer, close to three years. Uh, you know, we we did a lot of experiments. Um, you know, just conducting the uh, uh, the studies. Um, uh, you know, related to to the materials, um, and then taking the materials and doing the biological studies, the blood clotting studies before we even put it into animals, and then. Uh, of course, we apply it um, into an animal model, and uh, you know that that takes uh, quite a bit of time. And we have subjected this material to severe testing conditions. Just to give you an idea, we have tested it on um, deep cut wounds on the skin. We have applied it uh, onto a a liver that is severely damaged uh, or injured. Uh, we basically cut you know the liver into half, and then you know we try to seal the blood. Uh, and we also um, raptured uh, an artery, and then we sealed that while the blood is still flowing through and, you know, splashing around the area of, of the injury. So it's a very comprehensive study, um, and it took a long time, but, uh, you know, we are very happy that, uh, you know, it came out uh, to, to the readers now. And uh, we're hoping that uh, in, in, in the future, uh, additional data will be available and 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 uh, could be utilized in in a a more practical scenario, which is of course to save lives. To save lives. Well, Dr. McQuanant, congratulations on the work that you've done, that the University in Manitoba has done, that the University in China has done. This is tremendous. This really is. Thank you so much for describing us or describing it for us today. Thank you very much for having me. Have yourself a great rest of the day, and good luck with everything moving forward. Thank you, and bye. Bye Bye-bye. That is Dr. Kibret McQuannan, who is a professor in the Department of Chemical and Biochemical Engineering at Western University. So you take some snake venom, and what they're able to do and what they hope will continue in terms of an application for humans is seal cuts, even significant cuts. He talked about a ruptured artery, and do it very quickly, making use of essentially a a super glue that this could take the place of stitches even that so many different applications one to follow for sure you've been listening to the london live podcast catch the show live on weekdays from one to three 